Our passage this morning is a long one, it's 30 verses. Uh, We are beginning Daniel chapter 2. If you're Uh, If you brought a Bible with you, uh, as always, I'd encourage you to follow along, but especially today because there is so much text to cover. If you don't have a Bible uh, but would like to use one as I read, you can look in the seats in front of you underneath, and you should find a Bible there with uh, the passage that we'll be looking at on pages 737 and 738. Daniel chapter 2 begins like this. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall show you Uh, and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was very angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise 
For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have sent and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Well, when we last saw Daniel, he was a 14-year-old, roughly, who had been ripped away from everything he knew growing up in the land of Judah and taken a thousand miles away by uh, the forces under King Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon to live in exile. And specifically, when we last saw him, he was uh, put in, essentially, the Babylonian university for three years, where he was given an education. And at the end of that time, those three years, he was brought before the king. And the king saw that he and his companions were uh, much better than the other exiles, and he made them wise men in his kingdom. Now, we see right here at the beginning of our text that this is in the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar that, that all of this happened. And so, if you're a careful reader, you might say, well, wait a second, how can this be in the second year if by the end of chapter one, Daniel and his companions have gone through three years of education? Does this happen in the second year of his university? Which is a natural thought, only the problem with that is by the end of this whole uh, conundrum here, by the end of chapter 2, when Daniel reveals the dream to the king, we see that Daniel and his companions are greatly uh, moved up in rank. Uh, in fact, Daniel is made, in essence, the, the second to King Nebuchadnezzar. And so that would make no sense for this to happen in Daniel's second year, have him be made ruler of Babylon and then be sent back to university for his degree, uh, only to come out and then be introduced to King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of three years. No, what's going on here is that we're dealing with the Babylonian reckoning of kingship. This is further proof that Daniel was not written centuries later uh, as some liberal scholars suggest, but that it was in fact written in the 6th century in Babylon because Babylonian reckoning counted the first year of a king's rule as his accession year. 
They did not count that as the first year. That was his accession year. His second year was his first year, and his third year was his second year. So, in fact, by the time Daniel graduated from three years, he, in fact, did go before the king. The king did see that he was greater than his fellow exiles and made him a wise man. And it was after that that the king began to have these troubling dreams. That also explains why King Nebuchadnezzar would call in his go-to guys. Uh, he had this dream. Now, it says dreams, but we know from just reading a later as we see what the dream is, and in fact, we even see in our passage that it was one dream. So, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't having many dreams. He was having one dream over and over and over again, such that it was troubling to him. And so, he went to his, again, go-to guys, his, his normal wise men. He didn't go to Daniel and his friends because they hadn't yet done what they're about to do in chapter 2. Now, you might say, well, wait a second, what about verse 20? Verse 20 of chapter 1 says that Nebuchadnezzar found Daniel and his companions to be ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And if that's the case, if he found them out to be that way before chapter 2 starts, then why didn't he go to them? Why did he go to his old school enchanters and magicians? Well, I think verse 20 is maybe for lack of a better way to put it, an anachronistically placed verse. What essentially the author is saying is that Daniel and his friends are going to be found to be far greater than all the magicians and chanters. It's as if you're reading a biography of Babe Ruth, and you finish chapter one, and he's just starting Little League. And at the end of chapter one, it says, Babe Ruth wound up being the greatest hitter that ever played baseball. And then you begin chapter two, and he starts his first year of Little League. And you say, wait a second. Chapter one just said he's the greatest hitter of all. Now he's starting Little League. How did that happen? Well, because it's saying what's going to happen. That's essentially what verse 20 is saying. Verse 19 says that when the king spoke to them, he found among all of them that none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In other words, he found that none among the exiles were like them. And so he promoted them and made them wise men. The historical stage is now set for these dreams. Nebuchadnezzar has these recurring dreams, and he calls in his men. And he says, look, I am troubled. I've had this dream so many times in a row that my spirit is troubled, and I can't even sleep anymore. And you think, how does a guy who is at this point ruler of the entire world, he's already fought his battles, his main battles have been won, he's now living in the lap of luxury, how does a dream make him this freaked out? Well, as I thought about it, I thought, well, you know, I, I have one recurring nightmare that I've had since I graduated from college, and that is a nightmare that uh, there's a test that I was supposed to have studied for that I didn't, and I find out on the day of the test that it's today, and I have no clue what I'm even supposed to be taking a test on, or that I signed up for a class and never attended the class, 
and then I find out on the last day of school that you essentially skipped every day of, of, of class, and now you're flunking. So I wake up in a cold sweat every time from this recurring nightmare, and I have to gather my thoughts and, and realize that, no, I've graduated, that's all in the past, I have a seminary degree, I'm married, I'm not in that situation, and then I can fall back to sleep again. Now, I've probably had that dream like once a year for the last 20 years, but you can imagine if I had it every day for like 10 days straight, that would probably be pretty freaky if every day for 10 days straight I had the same recurring dream. But you see, it's not only that, but it's that dreams in those days meant a lot more than they do to us, especially to Babylonian kings. Kings in Babylon put a lot of stake into dreams. They thought they meant a lot. They thought they pointed forward to something important, maybe a, a, a battle that they might lose or something like that. And so that's why they had an army of guys to interpret these things, because they were concerning to them. But again, over all of this, as we see even in our passage, we see that ultimately the reason Nebuchadnezzar is so freaked out about this dream that he calls these men in is because God is in control. Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. In fact, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar in verse 28 that it was God who put the dream in his head in the first place, that it was this God of heaven. It was God who wanted this confrontation to happen in the first place. And so the king commands the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, those Chaldeans, that just means kind of like astrology experts or something like that. He calls, again, this kind of dream team together. He expects them to put their heads together to work as a team and figure out what this dream means. And, and everything begins probably like it always had before. Them coming before him and and him saying, look, I had a dream, my spirit is troubled, and I want to know what the dream means. And the dream team responds like they always have before, oh, king, probably with a smile on their live forever, king. Tell us the dream, and we will tell you what it means. Now, I don't know why Nebuchadnezzar switched things up. Scripture doesn't tell us. Again, of course, the God of heaven is in charge. But this time, instead of the king telling them the dream and hearing them again say, oh, good news, sire, the dream you just had means that you're going to win a decisive battle and rule forever, O king. This time he says, hey, I'm sick of the yes men. I'm not sure you guys know what you're talking about. You tell me the dream and its interpretation. Now, you can imagine already they're probably a bit frightened, but I can't imagine how they feel when he tells them what will happen to them if they don't tell them the, the dream. He says, if you don't tell me the dream, you are going to be dismembered, torn limb from limb. And he even goes on to say that your house and your land and your family will be turned into a dunghill. Now, just for a little side note, I mean, consider the amount of sovereign power that these ancient kings had over people's lives. I mean, in, in one sense, Nebuchadnezzar was the law. If he decided that people would get torn limb from limb, who would tell him no? 
And so these guys now have this challenge before them. But if they know what they're doing, if they are who they've always claimed to be, then they should be really licking their chops. They should be excited because he says, if you get it right, then you'll get great honor and prestige and gifts from me. And so if they know what they're talking about, great. Great, I can't wait to be honored. But alas, they show that they are liars and scammers and yes-men. They answer a second time. Now notice the second time, there's no, O king, live forever. You can imagine now the smile's gone away from their face. But they try to get him again. Let the king tell his servants the dream and and we will show the interpretation. And, And Nebuchadnezzar says, look, I know you're biding time. Tell me the dream or else. And finally, the the jig is up. They know it. And they finally decide to fess up and tell him the truth. What they say in verses 10 and 11 is three-quarters right. They begin by telling him what Scripture says. There is not a man on earth who can meet these demands. There's no great and powerful king that has ever asked such a thing. Every king before you, sir, has has always told the dream and let us interpret it. How crazy is it that you're asking us to tell you this incredibly detailed dream? The thing that you're asking is, is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods. Up till that point, well, except that their gods are just idols and really nothing, but Assuming we're talking about the God of heaven, the God of Scripture, up to that point, they're correct. Only they go one step too far. They say the problem is the gods don't dwell with people. They're somewhere out there. We don't know how to reach them, and they never have contact with us, sire. Well, again, that's three-quarters correct, Technically, again, it's, it's correct of their gods because their gods are nothing. But the God of Israel, the God of heaven that Daniel prays to, does exactly that. Exodus 25, 45 and 46 says, I will dwell among the people of Israel. I will be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Well, because of this, verse 12, the king was very angry and very furious. I mean, this language here is Nebuchadnezzar is just, he's blown his top, he's enraged. And he orders now that all of the wise men, not just the ones standing before him that have answered him in this flippant way, but all of the wise men in all of Babylon are to be destroyed, even the ones that are, have nothing to do with this, including Daniel and his companions. Now, one of the things that I thought is why would Daniel and his companions be destroyed along with these guys? They haven't answered him this way. He found them to be very knowledgeable. Well, I think it's because in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, this whole thing is a sham. Daniel and his friends have gone through three years of learning this garbage. He's found out that it amounts to nothing. 
That's what they were just trained in, so why would I keep them alive? Kill them too. I'll start over from scratch with somebody that maybe knows what they're talking about. Now imagine if you're Daniel and his friends. Thus far, Daniel and his friends, think about this, thus far, every seeming blessing in their life from God has turned out to be a disaster. Why were they exiled in the first place? They were stripped of their homeland and taken a thousand miles away because they were the cream of the crop, because God had blessed them so much. Everyone else was left home. They'd been ripped away from their home because He blessed them with brains and wisdom and pedigree and good looks and everything that He gave them, and now they're suffering for it. And now, when they go through this university they never wanted to go through, He blessed them with the ability to know better than anyone else the things that were taught there. And now because they know better than anyone else that God blessed them with brains and the ability to study and comprehend and, and, and again, graduate summa cum laude, he, they now are the target of mass destruction. Can you imagine what they must be thinking? Can you imagine what they must feel? And I wonder, have any of you ever thought that? Have any of you ever thought that Something that you initially thought was a blessing from God has in some way turned out to be what you think is a curse. That you wonder why God would have given this thing or this thing to you only to have it end up this way. And you might not ever know the answer to that. But you can get hope and find hope in this passage because we see that behind everything happening to Daniel and his friends, God does have a plan for his glory, even though I'm assuming they couldn't see it at the time. But the other thing that strikes me here is what it seems to be happening is that Nebuchadnezzar is taking the first step towards faith in the God of Scripture. And the first step is that he's discovered the bankruptcy of the gods of this world. That Nebuchadnezzar used to trust in what these men told him. He used to think that the gods of Babylon actually revealed secrets. He used to think that the gods of Babylon actually gave him his strength and gave him his power and foretold his blessings. And now he's discovered that the whole thing is a house of cards. He's about to discover from Daniel that there is a God who reigns. He hasn't found that out yet. At this point, he's only found out that this world's gods are worthless idols. Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're sitting here in this room having become convinced that this world has nothing of eternal value to offer you. Maybe you think, therefore, there is nothing of eternal value. Scripture says that there is a God in heaven who exists and who came to earth to die to pay for your sins if you would trust in him. That he offers hope where this world offers none. Nebuchadnezzar is now again discovered the bankruptcy of everything that he has trusted in, and so now he sends his uh, Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, to kill the wise men, including Daniel. 
And in verses 14 to 16, you see that he comes to kill Daniel. And remember, again, Daniel is probably around 17 here. Let's say he was 14 when he was exiled. He's gone through three years of schooling. For him being 17, his response to this man astounds me. Here comes the captain of the king's guard with orders to dismember Daniel for nothing. That's what he's been told. And as he stands and looks at the man who has come to kill him, Daniel, it says, replies with prudence and discretion. Once again, we see Daniel speaking with prudence, speaking with discretion, speaking with honor to those that God has put over him in this foreign land, even a man who has come to kill him. And Daniel, I mean, if I'm told that by a man, I've been sent here to kill you right away, to dismember you, and to leave you a puddle of mush, I'm not sure that I would respond with, why is the decree of the king so urgent? You imagine that? I mean, the kind of poise that God has given Daniel at this moment. I would imagine it took him back, this guard. I mean, maybe that's why he stood and talked with Daniel for a while. Most people would probably be running for the door and have to be grabbed by guards. Notice here the total contrast between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, who does not have the God of heaven on his side, who is the king of the known world, who has all riches, all power, all authority, is freaked out by a recurring dream such that he orders mass slaughter. Daniel, who is a boy of 17 who's been exiled, ripped away from his home, and everything he grew up knowing is all by himself in a totally foreign land and now living as an exile, having the God of heaven is able to respond in this way, though being told you're about to be killed. What a contrast. And notice, Arioch's reply. He actually gives Daniel the time that he requested. This, again, this is now the third time that you see this happen. What did Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, have to gain by giving Daniel anything that he asked? He sought to gain nothing. He sought to maybe lose his life. But if you go back, you remember what Ashpenaz said. When Daniel said, hey, do, do I have to uh, eat this food? Ashpenaz listened to what he said. He said, well, listen, I, I don't know because if you don't eat it and, and, and you show a difference, it'll be my head. But then Daniel goes to the, to the other guy under Ashpenaz, and he says, yeah, go ahead. I'll give you the 10-day test. What would cause them to do that? You would think these guys would say, shut up and eat the food we're giving you. It's not my head on the chopping block. Same with Arioch. What, why is he even entertaining this? Well, again, all of these guys had nothing to gain and everything to lose by helping Daniel because they were under the orders of the greatest king on earth. But what they didn't know is that all the while they were under the providential control of the God of heaven. That's the only explanation there is. And so God here 
obviously gives Daniel some kind of favor in the sight of Arioch, who, despite having been given orders from a raging mad Nebuchadnezzar, nonetheless agrees to this time. It seems as though he gives Daniel a day. And notice here that Daniel goes to his wise men. Nebuchadnezzar called his, Daniel goes to his. He goes to his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But notice a couple of things. One, notice that they have not completely assimilated to Babylon. They don't call each other by their Babylonian names. When they speak to each other, they call each other by their Jewish names. They still remember whose they are. But secondly, notice this. They go, he goes to the wise men just like Nebuchadnezzar did, but with one huge difference. Whereas Nebuchadnezzar went to his wise men so that they could tell him the dream, Daniel goes to his wise men so that they could join him in prayer to seek mercy from the God of heaven so that he could show them the dream. Daniel ends up saying to Nebuchadnezzar, look, I didn't come up with this. Your guys were right that there is no man on earth, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made it known. Now, when Daniel and his friends went to prayer, that may be the most astounding thing in this entire passage. Because for them to go to God in prayer, what was it that they had to believe? They had to believe to make prayer even an option. They had to believe that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, despite their being exiled, was still with them. That he was still the God of heaven. That though they had been exiled, that though Nebuchadnezzar had in some way won an earthly battle, that nothing had stopped their God from reigning and from dwelling with them in some sense, although they were far away from the temple. He was the God of heaven who dwelt with his covenant people. They had been taught that from the time they were little. Remember, Daniel and his friends had grown up being taught the Bible. And what had they been taught? They had been taught that the God of heaven, the God of the universe, the God who created everything, called a people to himself, and that when, he was, when they were wandering in the, in the desert, they built, he had them build a tabernacle so that he could show them that he was with them. That when they dwelt in the land, he had them build a temple, and the Shekinah glory would enter to show that he dwelt with them. They had been told over and over again that he was present with them, and though they could not see him, Though he was invisible, he was with them, and so they were never alone. That's what Daniel and his friends believed. They knew that their God was a God who reached out to his people in mercy and made it possible through his mercy to dwell with him, and they never forgot that. They knew that their God, the God of heaven, would be with them in exile, and so they prayed. Scripture says that the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. 
And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now, a whole sermon series really could be preached on verses 20 through 23. But what I want us to see this morning is when Daniel, in a sense, prays this prayer of praise, notice that before he focuses on what God does for him, he focuses on who God is. He focuses on the God who is before he focuses on what this God who is does. Look at what he says. He acknowledges these great truths of God, whether they involve Daniel or not. He affirms that God is the one who is both omniscient and omnipresent. To him belong wisdom and might, not to me and not to Nebuchadnezzar and not to his wise men, not to anyone on earth, to him. He is the one who changes times and seasons. He is the one who removes kings and sets up kings. He is the one who gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He is the one who reveals deep and hidden things. Over and over and over again, Daniel praises God for his attributes. And then he goes on to focus on God's actions toward him. It is this God, the God of heaven, Daniel's God, who has all authority, all knowledge, and all power, and who has given Daniel wisdom and might, who has made known to Daniel what he asked of him, who has made known to him the king's matter. It was this prayer of praise, I think, it's, well, it was the prayer before that that they entered into, and then it was God's answering that prayer, and then it was this prayer of praise, I think, that gave Daniel the courage to stand before the king and say what he says to the king. You can imagine the kind of fear. Nebuchadnezzar is probably about 30 years old at this time. You can imagine a teenage boy going before the most powerful man in the world and standing boldly before him and saying, I think I can interpret your dream. How can Daniel do that? How can Daniel overcome the natural fear of man? I think because he's just focused on the God of heaven. Compared to the God of heaven, Nebuchadnezzar, just like Daniel, is just a man and no more. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Now this, when you think about it, is quite astonishing. Daniel is from the land of Judah. Daniel has been raised an Israelite. Daniel has been taught God's law. What does God's law say about magicians and sorcerers and necromancers and all of the things, the magicians, all of these things that, that these other wise men are? God's word in God's law says that they are an abomination to God. And if found in the land of Israel under the theocracy of God are to be killed. Anyone who consults them is to be killed. 
And yet, it's astonishing to me that though Daniel could have allowed these other men to be destroyed and only save himself, he stands in as a mediator and an intercessor. Daniel could have very easily stood back, told the king, I and I alone and my companions here can can, uh, answer this because we know the God of heaven, but these other guys are worthless, go ahead and kill them. Daniel could have allowed that to happen and in his mind allowed justice to happen. God doesn't like these people, I've been taught that, so why not let them be killed? Why didn't he? Why did he step in and say, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon? I think it's because Daniel ultimately remembered that he was an ambassador, that Daniel was no longer living under the theocracy of Israel, but that he was living in exile in Babylon. He remembered what God had called him and the other exiles through the prophet Jeremiah to do. God had told them, when you're there in Babylon, when you're outside of this theocracy and you've been exiled into Babylon, I want you to seek the welfare of the city that I have sent you into exile. While you are there, I want you to pray to the Lord on its behalf. Living in exile, not living in the theocracy of Israel, Daniel did not consider it his job to punish sinners to seek vengeance against sinners, or to seek retribution for God's sake. Living in exile, he left vengeance and justice in the hands of God and sought rather to be a merciful blessing to those among whom he had been placed. Even though he knew that in the sight of God, they were great sinners. He saw it was his job to be merciful. He sought to be an ambassador. He sought ultimately to share the good news of the God of heaven with them. You know, I confess to you this morning that oftentimes I find it hard, especially in these days, to have an attitude of mercy to those that I look around and see are so brazenly sinning against the God of heaven. And so it's a good reminder to me what Daniel's attitude was toward the people of the land of Babylon. It's a good reminder to me that we leave, as Romans tells us, vengeance in the hands of God. One day, Christ will return. We sang about it earlier. Lo, he comes with clouds descending. He will one day return and right all wrongs. But until that day happens, the church of this age is a church in exile. And Scripture tells us that the wheat and the tares grow together. And one day Christ will return to cast aside the tares. It doesn't mean that we don't call sin for what it is, but we leave judgment, and vengeance in the hands of God. After all, we were shown mercy as well. You 
You see, 600 years later, after Daniel would show himself to be a mediator, the man named Jesus of Nazareth would come and show himself to be the ultimate mediator. It was Jesus who was the God of heaven. It was Jesus who was the eternal one, the the God of all power, the God of all authority, the God of all wisdom, all knowledge, the one who existed with the Father before all times, who left his Father's side, who entered into this world. Our God, Christian, our God, the God of heaven, has dwelt with his people ever since he called them to his side. He dwelt with them in the tabernacle. He dwelt with them in the temple. He dwelt with them in Babylon. And ultimately, he came and took on flesh and dwelt with us. The Word, the Word that existed from all eternity with the Father became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And because Christ stepped into this world and took on the role of mediator the first time, he will return again as judge. But when he came as mediator, he stepped in and took that role on to save us who would otherwise have been wiped out in God's judgment. And because of what he did, he not only dwells with us via the Holy Spirit now, but we will forever dwell with him. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And when we come to the Lord's table, we remember not only Jesus as our mediator, but we remember that one day he will come back again 